morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. If you would, please uh, join me in your Bibles in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I enjoyed the singing this morning. Trust that you did as well. And now we get to open up God's word and uh, seek to gain some wisdom from what he has for us as we journey through this chapter. And the, the prayer is, as we unfold chapter 15 in regards to the resurrection, that we will uh, grow First of all, in just our understanding of what the resurrection is, that we will grow in our faith that the resurrection is going to happen, that there is a life that's after this one, and that it is physical. We'll look at that uh, later in the chapter. And that as a result of the faith that grows through the study of this text, we'll live differently. Uh, We'll begin to embrace this idea that what I do in this life actually has an impact on the next life, and we'll embrace that truth, and we'll begin to live life here a little bit differently. We'll begin to purposefully live out what God has planted us here to do, and even sacrificially live for the Lord, knowing that there is a, a, a next life. There's a lot of things that we do in life. It's, 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 I think it's somewhat of a, of a constant, the things that we do in life because we expect something to happen, right? We, uh, we, go to, we go to school for 13 years because we know that college is coming after that, and then we go to college for four to six years because we hope that there'll be a career and a job that we go through, and um, we go to, through college, then we get a career hoping that we'll be able to have a family and be able to take care of our family's needs, and we do all of these things, and what we would say is, is if, they're, if, if those things are all meaningless, uh, for instance, let's say that you, know, you, you don't need to go to 13 years of school anymore because it doesn't really matter, or you don't need to go to college anymore because it doesn't really matter because at the end it's just all going to be worthless, you're, you're better off not doing those things or whatever might be the case, but we make those sacrifices, we go to that 13, kids go to 13, and they they murmur, they complain, they do all that stuff, but they go to 13 years of school because they know that there's a a reason for it. There's something that's coming that, that they need that to prepare them for that next step, right? Now, parents, we make your kids go to 13 years of school, right? Do you guys, you guys like wake up in the morning like, hey, you guys want to go to school today? You know, it really doesn't matter, but, you know, it might be a good idea if you go, and it might not be a good idea. We, we really don't do that, do we? When we wake them up in the morning, and we say, hey, you know what? Get ready. You're going to school today. Get your lunch bag, and we're going to take you to school because we don't want them to end up not being able to get a job one day, not being able to take care of their family. We have certain expectations of them, and those expectations lead us to make certain sacrifices, right? In this life, we make certain sacrifices because we know what the next step holds and what the next step entails. And we do it with college. We do it with careers, too. We have a career, and we start out at a certain level, and we work hard, and we're sacrificial, and we do it because we are hopeful that the next level is going to be better, that there's going to be some benefits or blessings based upon the sacrifices that we make now. 
What we learned last week is that a a philosophy had crept into the church at Corinth that basically said this life and this body was just kind of a throwaway life and a throwaway body. It didn't really matter what you did in your body. And so just kind of live however you want to live because it's all going to just be thrown away and you're just going to be a spiritual, a spiritual being in heaven and what you do in this life that's spiritual you know, will carry with you, but the physical doesn't really matter. And what we learn in 1 Corinthians 15 is that that's not true, that's a lie. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear and, and seeks to instruct us and convince us that there is a physical resurrection that's going to take place and that based upon that reality that you should be living your life here on this earth with different, with different um, passions and we should be living this life here on this earth sacrificially, even in a physical way, knowing that it's going to carry on, it's going to carry through to the next life. The life that we live now is, 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 has been redeemed. If you're a Christian, you've been, you've been redeemed or you've been purchased back to God. But the Bible says that our bodies have not yet been redeemed, right? They're, they're, but they're being redeemed, and one day they will be redeemed. They'll be, they'll be restored or glorified back to a state of perfection, and they will carry on forever. We want to always remember that Adam, Adam and Eve's bodies were eternal bodies. They were physical bodies, but they were eternal bodies. There was no expectation of death when it came to Adam and Eve prior to sin entering into the world. So redemption is restoring things. The earth one day will be restored. It will be redeemed. It will be bought back from all of the sin that has destroyed it. And the world will be a perfect place to be again. That's where the Lord says there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. The idea of it'll be a restored heaven and a restored earth. It'll be an Eden-like experience. And we will be restored back to being eternal beings. And our bodies, our physical bodies, will not have this temporary um, mindset or this temporary existence, but they'll have an eternal existence. So what the Apostle Paul is teaching us is go to high school, go to college, Get a good career because these things are going to build up and they're, they're going to ultimately lead to earthly success. What he is telling them is do things in this life because they're going to ultimately do spiritual things in this life, do sacrificial things in this life, live your life for the Lord in this life because ultimately it's going to lead to eternal blessings. We read last week when he says in 1 Corinthians 6, I believe it's verse 18 through 20 where he says to flee fornication. He says anyone who commits a sin against a fornication sin commits a sin against his own body. And then he says, therefore, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So what he's telling them is, is that your body, your, your, your physical, the physical piece of you, the part that the Corinthians had become believers that was just a throwaway part of you, the Lord is making it very clear in 1 Corinthians that it's not a throwaway part of you, that your body is important to God. He wants you to live for him in your bodies, and they're, they're going to carry on into eternity. Our bodies are going to be transformed or changed, we'll see at the end of this chapter, called the resurrection. When a person comes to believe in Christ, salvation is, the life of Christ is a life of suffering, right? The life of Christ is a life of sacrifice. Salvation is me embracing the life of Christ, 
because I know that I also get to embrace the eternality of Christ. Jesus Christ endured the cross because he knew that there was a certain joy, an eternal joy that was set before him. That's what we're called to. That's what we're supposed to be living for. So with that being said this morning, I want to look at three uh, irrefutable proofs that the resurrection will happen. There are four. The first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15 give us four proofs or four evidences, if you will, that the resurrection is going to happen. They're all built around Christ. Okay, Christ, 1 Corinthians 15 is meant to tell us that Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And I think most, most of you would agree this morning that going to the tomb and finding it empty, no body there, is super important to the gospel. That it is, that it is, it is a part of the gospel. It is inseparable from the gospel. You don't have an empty tomb, you don't have a gospel. You have to have the empty tomb. Jesus Christ had to rise again on the third day physically, bodily, as a, as a first fruit or as a prerequisite to us rising from the dead bodily as well. And that's what we look forward to. We no longer as Christians live for this life, we live for eternal life. We sacrifice, we suffer, we face uh, difficulties, not so that we can have all of the things, not so that we can go to college, not so that we can get a good career and a good job and make a lot of money and have a good family. Not, we don't suffer and sacrifice for those reasons. We suffer and sacrifice for reasons that are even beyond that, for eternal reasons. So we're going to look at three this morning. We, we looked at the first one, which is the gospel. The gospel is the first irrefutable proof of the resurrection the fact that the gospel is Jesus died, was buried, rose again the third day. This is the gospel. You don't have the gospel without the resurrection. There are three others that we'll look at that um, are, are additional proofs to the fact that we will rise from the grave bodily. And this is one area where scripture agrees with culture. Both, both scripture and, a, and culture would say that in order for something to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, there must be evidences and there must be witnesses. That you can't dispense of evidence and witnesses in, in, if you're planning to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. Even in our legal system, we often hear things said like, there just wasn't enough evidence. Or if there would have just been an eyewitness, we would have definitely got a conviction. If you look and study our legal system, there are many very solid cases. There are many cases that we, as, as the average person, would walk away and say, that's a no-brainer, right? That is an obvious guilty or innocent. And yet we walk away from those cases, and the opposite of what we saw as being obvious is what is carried out because there is a lack of evidence or a lack of eyewitnesses. So the Greco-Roman world understood the idea, the importance of witnesses. The Apostle Paul also understood the importance of witnesses. He, he meant not just to prove this biblically to these people, but he meant to prove it factually, evidentially. He even meant to capture the cultural beliefs of there needing to be witnesses and evidence. He, went, he even wanted to capture that so that there would be no excuse as to the 
veracity of Christ raising from the dead and therefore us raising from the dead. I think it's just valuable to see how the Lord, how the Apostle Paul and the Lord didn't just throw away the idea of, of the culture there needing to be proof. The Lord could have just said, hey, just deal with it. This is the way it is. But yet he argues, he debates like a, like a lawyer would do, like, like a, a defense attorney does. He debates over the issue saying, this is the reality, but don't just take my word for it. Here are some evidences and proofs of it. Amen? We're glad about that, right? It's not just expecting us to believe it um, because I, somebody said it. It's like, here is the evidence of it. It's, it's provable. So in the, in the first, 11, in first 11 verses, we have four of these, what I, what I call them is foolproof evidences for the resurrection of Christ and consequently for the resurrection of believers. Four evidences, and we'll, we're just going to look at three this morning. The Apostle Paul says in, the, in his second letter to the, to the church at Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 13, he says every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this same principle is taught in the Old Testament. This same principle is taught in the Gospels. So we have it in the Old Testament, we have it in the Gospels, and we have it in the New Testament. There needs to be many witnesses, multiple witnesses, for something to be proven. And so the Apostle Paul is going to prove to us that the resurrection is true without any doubt. And here's, here's how he does it. If you want to follow along with me, we're going to read Verses uh, 4 down to verse number 11. We'll, we'll begin in verse number 3. For I delivered to you as first of portents what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised again the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And you can underline that in accordance with the scriptures because that's our first evidence that we're going to look at this morning in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures are the first evidence that we have for the resurrection of Christ and consequently the resurrection of believers. And then verse number five, you can mark in that he appeared. This is the second evidence, his appearance, that he manifest himself or appeared to... to um, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. So remember this based upon verse number 11, and also previously here in verse number 2, that this is a gospel that the people had accepted. This is a gospel that they had believed. They had believed in it. They had rested in it for salvation. They had trusted in it for daily strength. They had hoped in it for eternity. This is not a new gospel to them. This is the gospel that was the originally the one that was presented to them some four years prior to this. 
This is no new gospel. What's happening, though, is that they're being moved away from the practical nature of the gospel and belief in the gospel. It's a, it's a, it's a Hebrews mindset of slipping or sliding. And we have, we have warnings all throughout Scripture of the importance of not slipping away. So he gives us three irrefutable proofs here in this passage of Scripture, and I just want to unfold those as our first point this morning, three irrefutable proofs of the resurrection. The first one is the proof of Scripture. He uses this term twice in the text, according to the Scriptures. And both times he uses it, one is in that he died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose He rose on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. In other words, the emphasis is on the fact that the Scriptures are the evidence or the the proof um, where this information comes from. Matter of fact, this term in the Greek literally means it comes down from something. So the information or the idea of of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ has come down to us from the... Scriptures. It has come like like rain comes down to us. We would say the rain came from came down to us from from heaven. The Bible is saying here that this information, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, comes down to us. It flows down to us through the Word of God, through the Scriptures. The resurrection is throughout the Scriptures, and it comes down to us from the Scriptures. Not only does it come down to us from the Scriptures, but it is decreed in the Scriptures. And in other words, it's not just information that the Lord shares with us based upon his knowledge of events that are going to happen in the future. The Scripture is written in such a way that when it makes a proclamation about a future event, it's not based upon foreknowledge as much as it's based upon decree. What a decree is, is that when the Lord speaks something, it happens, It's not like the Lord is saying, I know that there will be a resurrection and I know that Jesus Christ will die. He is decreeing the fact that Jesus Christ will die and that Jesus Christ will rise again from the dead. So when he says that there will be a resurrection from the dead of all believers, he's not speaking from the perspective of foreknowledge. He's speaking from the perspective of decree. In other words, if if Jesus Christ doesn't rise from the dead, it makes God into a... It makes God into a liar. It doesn't make God into somebody who lacks knowledge because he's not just speaking from knowledge. He's speaking from decree. It deals directly with his power and his ability to accomplish the things that he's decreeing. So when he says it comes down from Scripture, he's not just speaking of the fact that this is where we get the information from, but he's also referring to the fact that that this information, this this proclamation that there will be a resurrection is a decree that it will become a reality. And I will submit this to you folks. As much and as far as you can believe the Scriptures, you can believe the resurrection of believers. As much and as far as you can believe the Word of God... But I will also submit to you, it's a lot harder to believe the Word of God in practical ways when it comes to eternal things than it is to say that we believe the Word of God. We all have the ability to, I mean, I think our church is full of people that know what we should believe and what we should live like. I think the harder thing is, is is it really like penetrating our walk? 
Is it really penetrating our walk? This is not just a decree of uh, uh, information, a display that we get this information from Scripture, but it's a decree of Scripture. Daniel 12 and verse 2, all the way back in the Old Testament, before Jesus Christ had ever uh, resurrected, or really from a, from a physical perspective, even thought of resurrecting, Daniel 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This verse is, is, is quoted years later in John 5.29, referring to the resurrection of believers. Psalm 16 and verse number 10, the Lord says, For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, or the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is speaking directly of Christ and his future, far into the future, his death and his resurrection. This is not just information, it's decree. God is making a promise to us in his word that this is going to happen. Isaiah 53, which is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture in regards to the the death of Christ taking upon the sins of his people, it says in verse 19, yet it shall be the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. What is that? That's the resurrection. That's the resurrection. Christ would die and he would take upon himself the sins of all of mankind who believe in him, who place their faith in him, who put their trust in him. Jesus Christ would become the sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all of those who embrace him as their Lord and Savior. But he would also raise again the third day and, he will, and, and, and it will be he that the Lord who, will, who, who the fruits of that work will prosper in his hands. We can go to the book of Revelation and we can see this fulfilled. The kingdom of the Lord coming down from heaven, prospering in the hand of the one who gave his life for our sins. This is a promise, a proclamation thousands of years prior to it being fulfilled. This is a promise or a proclamation of the resurrection of Christ, the fruitfulness of Christ, the benefits of Christ being carried out. This is a promise of these things happening as we as believers resurrect from the grave. It is not a promise that we're going to experience these things in this life. It is a promise of the resurrection. Some of us want to put the cart in front of the horse and we want to say all of these things, all of these blessings or benefits are for now and we become discouraged and disgruntled with Christianity because we're not experiencing them. These are promises for eternity. Imagine if Jesus would have said, hey, I want to take the promises of after my death and I want to apply them to me for my death. We would have no substitute for our sins, would we? Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jared read it this morning, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is a proclamation, it's a decree. Anybody who believes in Jesus, though he die, yet shall he live. As far as we can trust the Bible, we can trust the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers. Not only do we have the evidence of of Scripture, but we have the evidence of eyewitnesses. There's many eyewitnesses mentioned here in our text that the Lord gives us. He gives us six 
groups or categories, if you will, and they're, they're meant to line up. Peter or Cephas is meant to line up with James. The 12 is meant to line up with the apostles. The 500 are meant to line up with the apostle Paul. It's almost like you're climbing a ladder, for instance. You start off with, you start off with Peter, then you move to the 12, and then you move to 500. You start off with James, and then you move to the, all of the apostles, and then you move to Paul. And I'll explain to you how that's climbing the ladder because the Apostle Paul, he puts himself, he goes from one to probably 72 back down to one, and he calls that climbing the ladder. We can get the one to the 12 to the 500. That seems like climbing a ladder. But, but when it comes to eyewitnesses, there's a ladder climbing here that the Apostle Paul is doing in his writing to just go from one evidence to a stronger evidence to an even stronger evidence. And the first group is based upon numbers. The second group is based upon character and character witnesses. It's important to note that this list is not exhaustive. It's important to note that we all know that the Bible teaches that there were women who recognized and, and witnessed Jesus Christ's resurrection before men ever did. Uh, at the resurrection tomb, there were women who were there when Jesus Christ came out of the tomb. So we want to recognize that. We don't want to overlook the fact that this, is, this, this text here is not meant to, there's something about this text that overlooks that situation to say these are the ones that we're going to use as evidence for the resurrection of Christ. The women were there first. And I think the way that we understand this is to understand the motive of the list the motive of the list is what provides us understanding for the oversight of these women who had obviously seen Christ first after his resurrection. What is the motive of the list? Well, the motive of the list is that he, the Apostle Paul wanted to present the best evidence that he had, okay, the best evidence that he had for the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers in an era and a culture that did not respect the witness of women. Remember this, this is not about men or women. The Apostle Paul is not trying to make a case for how to, men are more respectable than women or women should be given more rights than men. This is not the Apostle Paul's purpose. When we read in a purpose that's not there, that's when we mess the word of God up. The Apostle Paul's purpose is to prove to you and to me that there's a resurrection from the grave. That doesn't matter if it's men or women. It's all people will resurrect from the grave. And the Apostle Paul is not concerned about giving, about giving lip service to some cultural things. What he's concerned about is proving the resurrection. So what does he do? He puts forth the best evidence that he possibly has that the culture will understand and the culture would accept because he's not wanting to change their culture. He's wanting them to win them to Jesus. So the purpose of his, of, his, of his work is such that it would make sense that he would choose men. Because in that culture, they were given greater respect in regards to evidence. Even in lawsuits in this time in history, in lawsuits, they would not, call, they would not often call on women as witnesses. 
I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. What I'm telling you is, is that that's not important to what the Apostle Paul is doing here. This is the value of rising above the world system and the world's desires and realizing that there's something eternal to things. I think sometimes we get caught up in these worldly things and we lose sight of the fact that there's eternal things going on. The motive is is that I want to prove that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and I'm going to prove the best witnesses that I possibly can. I'm going to prove it with the best witnesses that I possibly can based upon the culture that I'm in. And there's no, he, he makes no apologies for it here because he's not proving an earthly thing, he's proving a heavenly thing. Evidences of the eyewitnesses. The word here, there's a few things that are important about the word here, appeared. It's used in each one of the situations. It's used four times to describe six appearances. And it is always the same word, which means that there is an equality of appearance. Some scholars have said, well, his appearance to the Apostle Paul was unique to the other ones. Well, the, based upon the term that's used here, there was no uniqueness. All of the appearances were the same. What's interesting about the word and what's important to know is that it's always in the passive tense. In other words, it wasn't about the Apostle Paul seeing the Lord or the 500 people seeing the Lord. What it was about is the Lord revealing himself to them. It was completely an act of the Lord, not an act on their part. Matter of fact, it had nothing to do with their ability to see and everything to do with Jesus Christ's desire to make himself known. Remember on several occasions after the resurrection, people didn't recognize the Lord until he what? Until he made himself known to them. Until he revealed himself to them. He opened their eyes. He took the scales from their eyes so that they could see and understand. That's the idea of this word. He appeared to them means that he personally and specifically in his own strength and based upon his own grace made himself known to those people. And I want to say something to you this morning. That's the gospel. The gospel is not when we manufacture a vision of God on our own. The gospel is when Jesus Christ makes himself known to us. And it's life-changing This was a gracious work of God. Jesus revealed himself to Mary at the tomb. Jesus revealed himself to disciples on the road to Emmaus. Let's look really quickly here at the the list. The list. There There are six groups here. First of all, he mentions Cephas, which is the Aramaic term for Peter. And the Apostle Paul would often call Peter Cephas by his Aramaic name. Um, Cephas was known in the first century. He became, after his viewing of the Lord, he became a, uh, uh, a well-known leader amongst the apostles, or he was a well-known leader amongst the apostles for the entire time. However, I think what's important to note is that the last act of Peter prior to this event of Jesus Christ revealing himself to Peter was What? His denial, he denied him three times. Peter denied Jesus Christ three times, even to the point where he cursed him, right? He cursed Jesus. He cursed and said, I blankety-blank don't know this man. That's a paraphrased version. (laughs) I don't know this guy. 
This is three times, you guys remember it at the trial of Jesus with the, with the two soldiers and then the woman, and the woman was the one that caused him to curse, right? So he's denied Jesus vehemently, and that's the last event noted about Peter prior to this event with his experience with Christ. Why do I say that? I think that it's important to note that the Lord picked somebody that would not make up a story about the resurrection of Christ. Matter of fact, Peter might not wanted to see Christ in that moment. Peter might have felt guilt and shame like most of us would feel after denying and cursing our Lord and noting, and noting that he even, Jesus Christ even, even said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, I would never deny you. Man, if someone's going to die, I'll die right there with you. I imagine that Peter was maybe one that didn't want to see the Lord right here. So what does the Lord do? The Lord picks him and says, you're going to be a witness of my resurrection because you won't make up a story. The 12 apostles, most likely the title here is used for the original 12. There was, there was probably 11 apostles here at this meeting because Judas had obviously de- de- already um, rejected the gospel, rejected the Lord, um, sold the Lord off for 30 pieces of silver. So likely we have 11 apostles here, but the term 12 is a reference to the title of the 12 apostles. This would refer to the original 12. And then more than 500 people at one time. These were just a, a number of, this was like a massive crowd of people that he saw. He makes mention of them happening at one time, which implies simply that they all saw him at once. So no one's like, it's not a, it's not a oh, look what I heard from, I heard that I saw Jesus or that they saw. This is a, everybody's seeing Jesus at one time. They're seeing him alive. And the Bible even says that they, many of them are alive still, which gives them reference to the fact that they can go and ask them if they would like to. This also removes the fact that there would be any, any um, proof or evidence to them hallucinating, 500 people at one time hallucinating, or perhaps somebody making up a story. It would be very difficult for 500 people to make up the same story at the same time. So you have 500 people. This is, the, this is the climax of the first group. It's about numbers. Then he moves to James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He became one of the well-known leaders in the, in the New Testament church. But prior to this, James was a skeptic and an unbeliever. Matter of fact, John 7 and verse number 5, the Bible says that not even his brothers believed in him. Likely, what scholars say is that James became a believer at the appearance that Christ is referring to here. So here's another person that Jesus Christ makes himself known to that would have no reason to make up the story. He's lost. He had no reason to make up a story. Paul, Peter would have no reason to make up a story because of his guilt. James would have no reason to make up a story because he was lost. He was skeptical. Even when Jesus told him he was going to rise from the dead, he was a skeptic about it. He didn't believe it. Then we move on to all the apostles. This is likely the 72 that are sent out in Luke chapter number 10. I think this is another reference to just a number of people. And lastly, Paul. Paul was known and mentioned in the text. He became, you guys know this, he becomes a great leader in the New Testament. He writes uh, 13 chapters, 13 books that we know of in the New Testament. He came, became a pretty significant person in the New Testament. However, at the time, of, at the time of, of his referencing or seeing Jesus, the Apostle Paul was anything but a good man. 
The Apostle Paul has no reason to make up a story about Jesus Christ raising from the dead, right? Jesus, the apostle, when, when Jesus appears to the Apostle Paul, he is on his road to Damascus. He is going to gather up Christians to see them crucified. We, we see him witnessing Stephen's crucifixion in chapter number 7 of Acts. In chapter number 9 of Acts, he's being converted. What's he doing when he's being converted? He's going to get more Stephens. He has no reason to make up a story about the resurrection of Christ because he hates Christ. He's a persecutor of Christ The term persecution here in this text, it means to chase or to cause to flee. He was chasing after believers for the purpose of bringing them to destruction. He was the last in number and he was the least in likelihood. In proving the resurrection, Paul points to three unlikely witnesses, a denier, an unbeliever, and a persecutor, and three groups, including a very large group of 500 people who saw him at one time. Why does he do all of this? Why does he mention all of this? Because he wants to prove to us that the Jesus did raise from the dead, and he wants to prove to us that we're going to raise from the dead. He wants to prove it to us in such authority that we will live our lives on this earth now differently. That's the theme of it. That's the emphasis here. It's to change us. It's to make us into people that are different. The third evidence here is the evidence of conversion. The Apostle Paul refers to his conversion at the end of chapter number, uh, at the end of verse uh, uh, 10 and 11. He talks about his conversion. He uses his conversion as a final evidence for the resurrection of believers. While, there is, while the final resurrection of a believer is eternal and follows death, there is a resurrection that follows salvation and leads to a changed life. This is the resurrection that we call the new birth. That we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 1 or 2, we become alive under righteousness. We're transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is not a reference to the resurrection of the future, but it's resurrection of the now. Often it's been said that a person who doesn't experience justification or better way of saying it is a person who doesn't experience sanctification will likely not experience glorification. Sanctification is taking what God has done for you in salvation and it it is seeing it played out in your daily life. Glorification is when God sovereignly transforms you. Sanctification is when when God sovereignly transforms you now. And one is evidence of the other. Matter of fact, I would say without one, there is no evidence of the other. In the same way that we could say if Jesus Christ is not proven to have risen from the dead, we have no hope of ever rising from the dead, I will say this to you. If you have not been proven to have resurrected from the dead at salvation, you may not resurrect unto eternal life at the resurrection. The Apostle Paul talks about his pre-salvation condition. He was lost. He was last. He was the most unlikely. He was the least. 
He was unworthy. He was not enough. He was not sufficient. He was not significant. He was a persecutor of the church of Christ. Everything about Paul, and every time Paul shares his testimony in the word of God, he always maximizes how horrible a person he was before he was saved. He always maximizes his sinfulness before he was saved. May may I submit to you that the Apostle Paul's way of dealing with the gospel is completely the opposite of what the culture of religion teaches us today. It teaches us that we're okay, that we're fine, that we're not that bad, that yeah, Jesus can join your program, but, but don't reject your program. The Apostle Paul did not adopt that type of philosophy because he knows that that is a condemning philosophy. Biblical philosophy is, is I am a sinner. I am a dirty, rotten, worthless, undeserving, unearning, unmeriting sinner. And I need Jesus to come down and not join my program to make it better, but I, I need him to come and put me into his program. That's the gospel. Apostle Paul wasn't afraid of talking about his life before he was saved. Why? Because it magnified the glory of Christ in salvation. If Jesus Christ can reach down and pick up a guy like Paul, there's nobody he can't pick up. Salvation experience. The Apostle Paul says, all of grace. He says, I am what I am by the the grace of God. He talks literally about about his identity in that statement. I am My identity has been changed, and it's been changed entirely by the grace of God. The Apostle Paul needs no room for saying, I have earned it, I have deserved it, I have made myself good. He says, he points to the one thing that means only of God, and that is grace. And he says, listen, I am what I am today by the grace of God. And if you're a Christian this morning, you are what you are solely by the grace of God. Amen? His salvation experience is a great testament to the resurrection of the dead. And then his post-salvation transformation. He says the grace of God made Paul into a new man. The grace of God made Paul into a working man. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were, uh, we were created unto good works. That we've been born again unto good works. The Lord didn't birth us into his family so that we might continue to live for ourselves. He birthed us so that we might be new. Paul's conversion was so spectacular that it was identified as one of the strongest evidences for the eternal resurrection of believers. Think about that for a moment. His resurrection, his salvation was so powerful that it was recognized as one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection from the dead. I wonder if the Lord was like looking for, hey, I wonder who I can find on this earth who I saved so dramatically that I can use them to prove that someone's going to come out of the grave. Well, let's see here. There's John. Oh, let's move on. Let's go somewhere. He stops on Paul. Listen to what he says in Galatians 1 and verse 23 and 24. This is about Paul's conversion. They only were hearing it said... He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith which once he sought to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. That's the Apostle Paul's testimony, and his testimony was great evidence to the power of Christ. There's your three evidences. I want to give you two other things. I want to just run through these very quickly. What are some truths that we learn from these evidences? And then lastly, what are some applications 
There are three truths that we learn from these evidences. Number one is the fact that the scripture is the authority. If someone is going to be eternally minded, as we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, if somebody is going to have a perspective that rises, that raises them above this earth and causes them to live with an eternal perspective, they're going to have to make sure that the scripture is their only and final authority. That's why the Apostle Paul doesn't say, according to the philosophers, according to the this or that. He says, according to the scriptures. If the Bible says it and the world says it's wrong, the Bible is right. He doesn't say, according to science. He doesn't say, according to any of those things, because the reality of it is, none of those things would have helped his cause. Science doesn't teach you that people raise from the dead. Amen? At least not the science that I see. If you're going to believe in the eternal, if you're going to have an eternal philosophy, an eternal focus in life, you're going to have to make sure that the word of God is your authority. Remember this. If your highest authority or your ultimate authority isn't the word of God, You won't believe the Bible. You won't believe creation. You won't believe the flood. You won't believe that Daniel was in the lion's den and came out after a night of resting with them. You won't believe that Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. You won't believe that David beat Goliath. You won't believe that there were three guys who went in a fiery furnace and came out perfectly healthy without the smell of smoke on their body. You won't believe that that Lazarus rose from the dead. You won't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And you won't believe that you're going to rise from the dead. Folks, we've got to get back to where the Bible is our authority. The world is telling us everything. And we're bowing to their gods. The Bible is the truth, and the Bible tells us how to live our lives if we're going to live for eternity, and the world tells us how to live our lives if we're going to live for now. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Amen. Equipped for every good work. Where do we become complete and equipped for every good work? Is it based on science? Is it based upon philosophy? Or is it based upon the word of God? That's right. The second thing about truths that we learn. We learn, number two, to expect the unlikely. We learn to expect, we learn to trust the word of God. We learn, to, we learn to expect the unlikely. Remember this, God is proving himself in salvation to be powerful and gracious. He's not proving that we're worthy, righteous, or good. His intent is to show himself as good. Therefore, he does things in an unlikely way. In the same way of proving himself through Peter, James, and Paul, he does things that we wouldn't, that mankind wouldn't expect, or uses people that we wouldn't expect him to use. 
I think of 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. God has chosen the weak things. God has chosen the poor things. God has chosen the insignificant things. God has chosen the ignorant things. Why has God chosen all of these things? Because that's how God works. Having an eternal mindset is going to be something that causes you to expect the things that are unlikely. The people who you might say, well, God would never save them, save them. God would never use them. You might be wrong. And then the last uh, truth that we learn is the impossible. When the impossible is done, it is greatly glorifying to God. Your transformation shows God's strength. When Lazarus was ra- remember when Lazarus was raised in John 11, the, the religious leaders sought to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Why did they seek to kill both Jesus and Lazarus? Because they knew this, that, hey, people are going to believe in him. Because he did something that was impossible. I believe that we've left so little for the Lord to do in the realm of impossible today that we would never have to say, we would never be able to say that. We haven't put things in God's hands in such a way that a, a, great, a great scholar once said, to, to attempt things for God that without God would be utter failures. In other words, he said, do things for God that if God doesn't show himself, they will drastically fail. But you know, we're such a protected culture. We're such a mind, the mind of we have to be in control and we have to make sure everything is organized and structured and we leave nothing for God to do. Do you know what God does with a culture that leaves nothing for him to do? He does nothing. He lets that culture function on its own. And then he lets that culture suffer. He tells us that in Proverbs 1. He says, when you reject me and you don't listen to me, and then one day things become really bad and you come crying to me, he says, I will not listen to you. I will not hear you. We need the Lord. What the Lord wants from us, folks, is don't wait until it's so far gone that there's nothing we can do and now we're going to put it into his hands. What he wants us to do is put it in his hands at the early stages. It's yours, Lord. I can't do it. Let me give you three applications. Number one, just study the word. Study and meditate on scripture. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If we're going to be spiritually minded, we're going to have to be in the word. If the word of God is the means by which we understand coming down from the word, by which we understand spiritual things, we've got to be in the word. We've got to be studying the word more than we're watching TV, studying the word more than we're listening to the philosophies of this world, studying the word more than we're listening to other things out there. We've got to be studying the word. It's a direct result of believing this stuff. If you believe this to be true, you've got you to study the word. Number two is give your life to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Expect him to do something amazing with your life. If you're an unbeliever, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior this morning, give your life to Jesus. Trust that his death and resurrection were for you and ask him to reveal himself to you, to change you and to give you an eternal perspective. 
The Bible tells us he will do it. If you're a believer with us this morning, if you have already embraced Christ's gospel for salvation, give yourself to him. Give your energy, give your money, give your talents, give your possessions, give your time to God. Give your trust to him and trust him that he will do something with it that you would never have expected. The last is share, share your testimony. Share your witness with everybody. Be familiar, with, be familiar and comfortable with your own testimony. Don't be ashamed of sharing who you used to be because it is evidence of the power of Christ. Be sure to point people to the grace, to grace as the means of your change. And be changed. The strength of your testimony is a humble admitting of who you were and a bold display of who you have become. Let me say that again. The strength of your testimony is a humble admitting of who you were and a bold display of who you have become. In the closing, believing the Bible truths of the resurrection is necessary for our salvation. It is necessary for our transformation and it is necessary for our eternal hope. The call to us as believers, the call to us as people is to believe the evidence that God has provided for us in his word, to embrace the Christ of this evidence and to be changed for his glory and by his grace. And my question to you in closing is, will you believe Jesus? He said to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you're lost, if you believe this, you will be saved. If you're saved... And you will embrace this. You will be changed forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you so much for the promises that you provided. Not just the promises, but the decrees that we read in this book. That our book is full of, of proclamations of things that are going to happen. And if we would believe those and embrace those, there will be great transformation and change and hope for eternity. Please help each one of us this morning to embrace your truth, to fall in love with you because of them, to serve you in this life in anticipation of the next. In Jesus' name.